Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Esther, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And once again, I want to welcome everyone to our service. You know, as... As far back as as I can remember, I have loved stories. Uh, I'm indebted to my parents for many, many things, but one of the greatest gifts that they've imparted to me is a love of reading. They owned a a woman's boutique store when I was a kid growing up, uh, and it was right at uh, Columbus Circle on 57th Street and Broadway. And next door to their store was, was this huge bookstore called Coliseum Books. It's no longer there today. Uh, but they would take me with them to the store when I didn't have school, and um, I would be waiting at the door for that bookstore to open. And as soon as it opened, I would take a basket and, and I would run into the bookstore and I would just pull out whatever book I wanted and, and put it into my basket. And my parents had a rule. It was basically uh, one for you, one for us. So uh, basic, if, if I read the books that, that were assigned to me, the next book could be something that I wanted to read for myself. So I would, I would just stuff my basket with books, and they would throw some books in there, and I would buy all of those books, take it back to the store, and in the back office there, I would spend the entire day reading. 
I fell in love with uh, diving into a story, with, with being transported into another world, another time, a, a world that the author had, had, had skillfully, masterfully crafted and built. I loved being completely immersed in the narrative. So as a child, uh, very often my best friends were characters in books. Uh, I played with, with Anne Shirley at Green Gables. And that was a book that my parents had assigned to me. I, I pioneered the prairie with Laura, with Ma, Pa, and the rest of the Ingalls family. And growing up, and even as an adult, I, I loved journeying through Middle Earth with Frodo and Sam. I loved traversing galaxies with Ender and Bean. I loved searching tirelessly for the Dark Tower with Roland, with, with Eddie, with Jake, and with Oi and Susanna. And of course, who can forget, I, I loved hunting horcruxes with Harry, Hermione, and Ron. There's nothing better for me than to be engrossed in a compelling story. And it doesn't have to be fiction. I was a history major as an undergrad, and the historians I loved the most were the ones who were able to, to bring history to life and, and to kind of draw me into the story. I love reading books by Eric Larson, who, who writes nonfiction like fiction. And my favorite podcast is called Hardcore History. Every episode is a four-hour history lecture that flies by because of the way that it's told. And I share all of this with you today because as we explore the book of Esther together in this series, there are indeed many principles for us to apply. There are many things for us to learn, but I also want to invite you to spend some time appreciating, admiring, marveling at the brilliant story that is, that is masterfully woven and told in this book. Think about it for a moment. What makes for a compelling story? High stakes, nuanced characters, layers upon layers of subtext, twists and turns, climax and resolution. Well, this story has it all. An orphan girl, who becomes the queen of the greatest empire that the world had ever known to date. Political intrigue, six-month royal feasts, sex competitions, fantasy suites, assassination attempts, bitter feuds, multiple reversals. I'm telling you, as Christians, we don't need to watch Game of Thrones if we have the Bible. The story is, is just masterfully crafted. It, it invites us into it. So what I want to do today is I, I kind of want to take a deep dive into the story. And I want to focus on three aspects of the narrative today. I want to focus on a godless world, a faithless hero, and a doubtless salvation. So those three things. Let me kind of catch us up on the story in 586 B.C., I'm going to put my professor uh, hat on. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem falls to the Babylonian Empire. And the, Nebuchadnezzar comes with his armies and carries off the Israelites. And they're carried off into captivity to Babylon. And, and eventually the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus makes this decree. Any and all Israelites who want to return to Palestine are free to do so. 
And you'd think that the Israelites would jump for joy and say, all right, let's go home. You'd think that they'd return in mass back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to resume their lives, to retain their Jewish identity. But what ends up happening is that only a fraction of the exiles actually choose to return to Palestine. Most of the Jews, they'd gotten pretty comfortable in captivity. They'd started businesses. They'd, they'd gotten married. They'd had children. They, they even ascended the social and the corporate ladder. Life was pretty good in the Babylonian and then in the Persian Empire for the Jews. So while 50,000 faithful Jews actually do return to Palestine, what we see is that many Jews don't go back. They stay in the Persian Empire. And these people who stay, they're the ones who, they, they'd assimilated. They'd assumed new identities as Persians and had kind of relinquished their identity as Jews. So the events of this story, of this book, of Esther, they occur 50 years after Cyrus allows the Jews to return home. This is 50 years later, and this story takes place in the capital city of Susa, at the very heart of the Persian Empire, and it's about the Jews who stay. Not the ones who go back. It's about the Jews who stay. And I want to ask you, what do you think happens to a religious community when all of the truly faithful, when, when the ones who fervently practice or they're loyal to that religion, when they leave, and then the more nominal, the more moderate, the more casual adherents remain. Well, what happens is that these Jews begin to, to blend into the broader culture. The things that, that made them stand out, their distinguishing features, they, they kind of get smoothed out. So one's Jewish identity, it's no longer this core spiritual reality, but rather just another cultural marker out of many. So what we've been saying over the past few months is that God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. There's no mention of prayer. There, there, there's no mention of religion, really. There, there are no miracles that occur. Nothing supernatural at all about the book. And the author does this deliberately to show that the story takes place in a godless or post-God context. God is, is not reflected in the cultural milieu at all. He's, he's long gone from public consciousness. God is unseen. He's unheard. And he is unrecognized. There's no fear of God, either from the Jews or from the broader culture. And what we're left with is utter chaos. There's total immorality and, and just incompetence at the highest levels of government. So what's happened in the story thus far? Remember King Xerxes? Well, he had this kind of six-month, 180-day party. And then he, he kind of caps it off with this seven-day party. And on the seventh day, he is drunk. And what he decides to do is he wants to parade his wife out before the court to put her on display, to show her off. And she does the unthinkable. She refuses. She says no. And he doesn't know what to do. What, what do I do? So his advisors, they come up with this genius plan. 
Let's get rid of her and get a new queen. Let's get a, a new queen who's going to obey. So how do we do that? Well, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll find the hottest girl in the empire. <laughs> Let's find the most attractive woman in all of the kingdom. So here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll gather up the, the, the prettiest single woman in, in all of the empire. You're going to sleep with one at a time. And, and, and after that, the one who pleases you the most, she'll be the next queen. And can you believe it? Xerxes likes this plan. This is how he meets and marries Esther. And then Esther's cousin, Mordecai, in, uh, in, in chapter 3, he, he has this kind of playground feud with this important city of, uh, official, royal official named Haman. And the king had commanded that everybody bend the knee to Haman and to pay him honor. So everybody does it, even if they don't want to. Why? Because the king said do it, so everyone does it, except for Mordecai. He stubbornly refuses to bow to Haman, or to kneel to Haman. And of course, naturally, Haman is offended. He's so offended, he's so mad, that he's being disrespected by one man, that rather than having one man punished, he devises a plan to eliminate his entire ethnic group. And he actually puts a plan in place to go through with ethnic cleansing. All because he's offended. He offers the king this enormous amount of money and, to, and says, I'll, I'll, I'll donate, I'll make this huge donation, contribution to the kingdom if you will purge all of the Jews in the empire. You know what the king says? The king tells Haman, keep your money. I'll do it for free. This is utter madness. The, the lunatics have, have taken over the asylum. The people in charge of the world's affairs. Remember, this is the, the greatest empire in the world. The people at the highest levels, they're petulant, they're petty, they're psychopaths, they're bloodthirsty. In chapter 3, it, it ends with this verse. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. What a picture the author paints here. Couriers ride out with the news that the Jews were to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Young people, old people, men, women, and children. We're talking complete annihilation. And the news spreads fast. The people are terrified. And it's obvious why the Jews would be terrified, right? They have a sentence of death. But even the non-Jews, they have to wonder, if Xerxes can do this to a whole race of people... Just because? Then who's next? And the picture is, as the kingdom is in uproar, as the city is thrown into chaos, Xerxes and Haman sit down for a relaxing drink. Where in the world is God? This is a godless world. And I think that many of us can relate on some level, can't we? For those of us who keep up with what's going on in the world, especially at the highest levels of government, it is terrifying. 
It's a complete circus. It's a mess. And it's often the everyday average citizens who get hurt the most. Do you kind of read the news and despair for this country's future? Do you worry about the peace of the world? Do you ask who will save God's people? Well, our passage today addresses this, and it shows us who the hero is. My next point is a faithless hero. So Mordecai, he hears the news, and he realizes that all of this is kind of his fault. His stubborn refusal to honor this narcissist Haman has led to this royal decree that every Jew would be killed. How does Mordecai respond? He's torn, literally. He grips his robes with both hands and he tears them open. He rips them down to seams so that the threads are tattered and his skin is exposed. His heart, he's showing that his heart is torn like his garments. And this is something that ancient people did when they were in the depths of despair. And then he goes home. He takes off his ripped clothes. He rummages through his closet and he finds a heavy, coarse, thick garment that's made of goat's hair. And this is the same cloth that was used to make bags for grains or spices. It's called sackcloth. And the whole point of it is when you put it on, it would irritate the skin. And every time you move, every movement you make, it irritates the skin more. And the point is, it's impossible to be comfortable. There's no peace. There's no forgetting your pain. So Mordecai puts this on with nothing else. And then he walks over to the fireplace. And he takes fistfuls of ash out of the fireplace. And then he pours the ash over his head. He smears the ash into his face and his exposed skin. And this is how people mourned back then. The ashes were a way to signify, to to identify with death. And he leaves. He, He walks like a zombie or a ghost throughout the city. Can you imagine people kind of staring at him and whispering to one another, this person has lost it. He's gone mad. And Mordecai, he walks to the palace, but he can't enter the palace because mourners were not allowed into the palace. So he stands right at the entrance. And what does he do? He cries out and he won't stop. He screams, he cries, he wails. What a sight this must have been. And the Bible tells us that the the Jews throughout the empire, in every province who heard this edict, they did the same. Fasting, weeping, wailing. Many put on sackcloth and ashes and they, they lie down on the streets in public. They fast, they weep, they wail. But do you know what they don't do? They don't pray. There's no mention of prayer. 
They, they despair, but their faith is so small that, that they don't even cry out to God for help. They're just wallowing in their sorrow. And then the scene shifts very abruptly. Verse 4, we see Esther. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. It says that Esther was in great distress. Now, the first time I read that, I, I, I just understood it to be, oh, she heard what's going on and she's just conflicted. She's torn. She's, she's having a similar reaction that the rest of the Jews had. But what we see is that that's not the case at all. Because she doesn't even know. She has no idea what is going on. She doesn't know about the edict. She hasn't heard. She's completely insulated within the palace. She doesn't know what's happening. So why is she in great distress? She's... Her priority now is, is, is to get Mordecai to stop. Why? You know, I, I always thought of Esther and the story of Esther, I, I thought of Esther as this virtuous and uncompromising heroine who rises to the heights of influence and then sacrifices everything to save her people. But that's not the real story of Esther. You know, we heard two weeks ago about how Mordecai and Esther... Uh, they were not these innocent victims. Esther was not this innocent victim of sex trafficking. They strategize. They scheme. Mordecai commands Esther to, to hide her Jewish identity and then to keep it a secret, to not tell anybody about it. And she's a willing participant in everything that goes on. She embraces with open arms everything that her, her, her new status as queen brings her. And at this point in the story, we're about five or six years into her marriage with Xerxes. So for five or six years, she has been enjoying the good life. She's grown accustomed to a, a higher quality of life, a standard of living. The comforts of wealth, the validation that comes from public attention, Esther has sold out completely. And she's isolated from her people. She can't relate to her people at all. And the narrator goes out of his way to show that Esther is secluded and she has to rely on all these intermediaries to communicate with Mordecai. She has to send people back and forth. So while her fellow Jews are weeping and wailing, she is comfortably secure within the palace. And why is she distressed? Because to her, Mordecai is throwing a wrench in all of that. She had arrived at the top. She had achieved her goals. The plan had worked. And now he's going to ruin everything? That's why she's greatly distressed. She's thinking, what is Mordecai doing? Get him some clothes now. Make him stop. She never even asks what the problem is. Well, Mordecai refuses the clothes. He sends them back. So finally, Esther sends 
more help. She sends Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, to find out why Mordecai is behaving this way. So what does Mordecai do? He explains everything. He says, this is what's going on. He sends a copy of the edict. He begs Esther to please, please, please go to the king. Do something. Help us. You know what Esther does? She texts back this very neutral response that focuses all about the risk that it would bring to her. She basically says, sorry, I can't really do anything. The law says that anyone who goes to the inner court of the king uninvited would would be put to death unless he shows mercy. And remember, this is Xerxes, not really known for his mercy. And she says, I haven't been invited by the king for, for the past month, and I don't think he was sleeping alone every night. She just learns that every single Jew is sentenced to death, and her response is thoughts and prayers. No weeping, no wailing, no fasting. What do we see? We see hesitation. We see uncertainty. We see fear. She's terrified. And not so much at the prospect of death because she's the queen. right? She, she probably would have been safe. It might be okay for Xerxes to kill this fringe minority group of foreigners, but to kill his own queen over this impulsive edict after what happened to the last queen, terrible PR. So I think Esther, what's really bothering her, what she's really afraid of, is revealing her true identity as a Jew. Risk losing her status as queen. To let go of everything that she had given and sacrificed so much to achieve. She had kept this a secret for so long. To come out now as a Jew, it would put everything at risk. So here's her dilemma. Here are two options. Option one, silence. She could continue to keep her identity a secret. Nobody knew that she was a Jew. She could easily hide from this decree. Or option two, she could reveal her Jewish identity. She could go to the king and risk offending him enough to either kill her or strip her of her position. Those are her two options. Esther has reached a crossroads. She has reached a point in her life where she can no longer peaceably coexist as both Jew and Persian. She has to take a side. And to choose one is to risk losing the other. Mordecai responds to Esther in verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This verse is the most important verse in the entire book of Esther. It's it's the hinge of the entire story. Because what she decides in response to this determines what happens and how the story ends. And while Esther exhibits no faith whatsoever, Mordecai shows faith. 
Whether or not he really believes it, he says that the Jews will be saved, but you might not. Kind of like a veiled threat to Esther. If you don't do anything, the Jews are still going to be saved, but you won't. Now, that kind of doesn't make sense, right? Because if the Jews are saved, Esther's a Jew, why wouldn't she be saved too? How does this work? What's the math here? Here's what he's telling Esther, that being a Jew, it's not just a cultural identity, but it's a spiritual reality. What he means is this. Esther, you can try to save your life by staying silent, but even if you do survive, you will be killing your spiritual identity as a Jew. You will not come out of this intact even if you do survive. So let's say she does nothing. She stays silent. She li- continues to live a comfortable life. But what kind of life it is, is it really? It's, it's, it's a numbing life. It's a soulless life. She has the death of her entire people on her conscience. You think that's not death? It's really a choice between two different kinds of death. Another way to look at Esther's choice is like this. Basically, who will you trust to save you? Option one, trust in yourself. Be your own savior. Trust in, for Esther, her beauty, her attractiveness. Right? It, It got her this far. Trust in her planning, her scheming. It helped her to become the queen of Persia. Or option two, trust in God to deliver you. This is the most important moment in Esther's story. And I think it's the one that's the most challenging for all of us to hear. I wonder how many of us are at a similar crossroads in our lives today. Is your Christian identity kind of splintered between the cultural and the spiritual? Are we merely cultural Christians, or is our faith a core identity that defines who we are? Are we hiding our faith, afraid to let people know that we're Christians, or are we living out our faith in public, unashamed of who we are as Christians? Or, I I know this is many of us, are we kind of maybe straddling both Right? So, so on the one hand, we let people know that we're Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. But we really try to downplay it. We make sure we let our coworkers know, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we're Christians, but not, not, not one of those weird Christians. Not one of those super serious Christians who try to convert everybody and, and talk about Jesus in a really creepy way. We're not, we're not like that. Is that us? Are we going through life trusting in our own abilities, our own talents, our own plans to succeed in life? Or are we relinquishing control and trusting in God no matter where he might lead us? Or whatever the non-Christians might think. Or maybe this is you. You stop trying. Because like Esther, you've already compromised so much of your faith You've been a terrible witness for Christ to the people in your life that it just feels so hypocritical for you to now take a stand for your faith. Esther must have been thinking this. I've sold out my spiritual identity for so long. How can I now stand up for my faith? After what I've done? 
Well, Esther comes to a decision. Verse 16, she says, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Our faithless hero takes a stand. She's, she still doesn't have a lot of faith, right? Because there's no mention of prayer again. But she does call for a fast. It is something. And it's enough. We say at Exilic all the time that it's not the amount or the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. And as weak as it is at this moment, she looks to God. My last point is a doubtless salvation. You know, one thing I like to do when, when I'm reading a, a great story is to kind of put myself into the story and to, to walk around in some of the character's shoes. Imagine for a moment that you're in the story. You're a Jew in Susa as these events are unfolding. What does it feel like to receive a death sentence for being Jewish? It's an identity that, that you don't even think about much anymore because you're so Persian now. And then just to live in this crazy, godless world with this insanely inept people as your leaders. And then, to make matters worse, your entire salvation seems to rest squarely on the shoulders of Esther. And you're thinking, really? Her? She's our hero? She's going to save us? it would kind of be like all the immigrants in our country looking to Melania Trump to solve immigration. Her? Really? I mean, like Esther, what, what has she done really except be pretty and marry the king? She can't be it. She can't be our savior. Our salvation can't, our fate can't rest on her. And if you think about it, this is why Jesus was rejected by so many during his time on earth. The Jews in the gospel accounts, they looked at Jesus and said, this guy? Really? This uneducated carpenter? This homeless dude? Jesus didn't fit the mold. He's not what saviors look like. And the story of Esther, what we see is that it really mirrors a much bigger story. It's a smaller story within a much greater story. And it's the story of how this unexpected Savior saves not one ethnic group, not one people from this undeserved death sentence, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue from an eternal death sentence that is very much deserved because of sin. You know, the Jews in the book of Esther, they needed a mediator to intercede with King Xerxes, this foolish and unloving king. Well, the greater story tells us that all of us need a better mediator to intercede for us with God. God is a different king. He's a great king. He's wise. He's kind. He's just. He's faithful. You know what? He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the ruler of the universe. And the Bible tells us that you and I, all of us, have rebelled against him. And just like Esther can't enter into Xerxes' presence uninvited, we, because of our sin, cannot enter into the presence of God uninvited and unforgiven.
And the edict has gone out to all of the world that one day, a day is coming when all of sin, all sins will be judged. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul who sins will die. That applies to all of us. And all of us have the same choice to make that Esther did. Will I trust in myself? Will I trust in my goodness, in my abilities? Will I be my own savior? Or is there someone else I can trust to save me? The answer is there is. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the true mediator between God and man. Unlike Esther, who was completely cut off and isolated from her people, Jesus took on flesh, and he identified with his people completely. Esther competed her way to the top. Jesus scrambled to the bottom. He didn't try to become king. He became a servant. He didn't compromise like Esther did, but he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And just as Esther ends up going into the king, Jesus goes to his king on our behalf. And the father, the king, does not extend to him mercy, but judgment. Jesus never said, if I perish, I perish. You know what? He died on the cross for our sins so that we could live. Jesus is the better Esther. He's the mediator that you and I need. The one we can trust to bring us a doubtless salvation. You know, I love the book of Esther because even when it seems like we're living in this godless world ruled by people who they're less mature than my kids. God is so clearly behind it all. He's there. Two weeks ago, uh, I, I was with my family in Disney World, and I took my five-year-old son, Andy, on his first roller coaster. And uh, this was called Expedition Everest. Um, and uh, it, was, it was scarier than other roller coasters because a good amount of it was in pitch black. It was just in darkness. And um, this is how I know I'm a bad parent, but for some reason the look of sheer terror on his face is so amusing to me <laughs> that, like, I had so much fun on that ride. Um, and uh, we got through the ride, and, and he was kind of just shaking as he was leaving. And he looked at me, and he said, I was so scared, I felt like dead. <laughs> But then he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, um, but I was glad that you were with me because um, you're not scared of anything. And he said to me, Appa, you're so brave. Nothing scares you. And I'll admit, I, I got a little misty when I heard that. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what I was thinking in that moment when he said that to me? Because he's like, oh, you're not afraid of anything. You're so brave. I thought to myself, you have no idea how scared I am. Especially as a parent, I am terrified of the world that my children are growing up in. 
And I really thought this as I was having this conversation with them. At this very moment, India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons pointed at each other. Venezuela is in the midst of chaos and collapse. My parents in Korea, they live hours away from the most heavily militarized border in the world with the world's worst dictator on the other side of it. Europe, I don't know what's going on there, but it is a mess. And don't even get me started on the circus that is our government. I'm terrified. World War III can break out at any moment. And I'm terrified of what my sons are going to be exposed to, the threats that are lurking, the temptations that await, the conversations that I'm going to have to have with them sooner rather than later about things like sex, abuse, pornography, gender identity, sexuality, things I'm not prepared to discuss with children. I'm so scared for their future. How they're going to navigate faith in in this increasingly post-Christian world. Here's the comfort I get from the book of Esther. Esther tells me that while Andy has an imperfect father who can comfort him maybe for a few moments on a roller coaster, he and I both have a heavenly father who is truly brave. He fears nothing. He's always with us, even when we can't see him in pitch black darkness on the roller coaster of life. When there's chaos all around us out there, there's true shalom in here because we're never alone. You are not alone. We don't ever have to say, if I perish. I perish because the Bible promises us that for us who are believers, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a hope we have in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we sang these words earlier. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Christ, my victory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It is one for me. In the craziness, in the chaos of life, especially when we can't see you or feel you, help us to know that we are not alone. And as we face the crossroads, the the ever-present choice, do we trust ourselves or do we trust in you? Help us to choose you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.